Hi everybody and welcome to the NDSC podcast, a place to share ideas for future and new management doctoral students. I am your host Jose and I am excited to bring you these new three episodes recorded live at the SMA annual meeting. These new three episodes will have a special topic, academic mentoring and advisory. I hope you enjoy them. Welcome again. For this next episode, my guest is Associate Professor Andrew Bennett from Old Dominion University. I had the opportunity to meet Andrew last year at SMA during the Early Stage Doctoral Consortium, and then we met again at the MOBTS conference. Andrew has a lot of experience organizing and running doctoral consortiums, so he can provide great advice for us students on how to develop these mentorship relationships along our program. I hope you enjoy this next episode. Okay, hi everybody. I am here with Andrew Bennett at SMA. This is one of the other interviews I had planned for today uh, on like general uh, academic PhD journey advice, but also going into the mentorship part of, of your PhD. So welcome, Andrew. Thanks for being with me. Thanks for having me. Also, fun fact, um, Andrew, this year, organized the early doctoral yep. consortium here at SMA. I met Andrew last year at the early stage doctoral consortium at SMA in New Orleans. And then we had the nice um, coincidence again at MOBTS conference where he also organized that consortium. <laughs> so he's been in a way kind of like a mentor for me during my conferences. And he's always been a great uh, guy helping me a lot. So I'm very happy to have him. So the first question, Andrew, is just tell us a little bit more about you outside of being an academic, right? Who is Andrew outside of the classroom <laughs> and outside of all those papers, maybe, right? Right. Um, uh, that's a, always a harder question to answer because there's so many, I think, different parts of us outside of our work. Um, so I, uh, I, I'm not even sure where to start. I guess I'll tell you some fun things that I like to do nice. um, outside of work just because I think it's important to find things. For me, it's every day. Some people are like really good at being like weekend warriors and like, going on these really cool like adventures on the weekend. Um, I am not quite at that adventurous, uh, but I do a lot of things I think every day that sort of keep me sane. So I, I like to exercise. I think that's, um, for me, it's super helpful. Um, I, I like, I used to do triathlons. I, I stopped doing them when I was in, in the PhD program. I didn't have enough time to actually like train to do them really anymore. Um, but if it's nice outside, you'll find me like running or swimming or doing something like that. Um, I love being sort of outside uh, in, in the elements exercising um, and sort of during COVID, which has now been a couple of years since that all really started, um, I started to learn how to cook too. And that's surprisingly fun uh, for me. I'm not actually that good at it yet, um, but I think that's one of those things that it, it became like a hobby. Um, so now it's kind of fun to like try something new every week or every other week. Um, and it just sort of breaks up, uh, you know, like the really boring like frozen meals that I used to have as a PhD student or the ramen. And now it's like, I can like, I can like cook stuff now. This is exciting. So, nice. Yeah. Do you have a favorite uh, dish or a favorite cuisine from the world that you might have? Like, oh, this might be my favorite. I know all of them are really good, but <laughs> um, no, I I um, I'm not that talented yet. <laughs> Let me put it that way. Like, I would love to be able to like cook some really cool like Asian dishes because I love eating like like a lot of like spicy Asian food, and I okay. just can't cook it yet. Okay. Um, so I think that would be like 
maybe maybe next year or if I go on sabbatical or something I'll like try a cuisine that's much crazier than what I can currently do nice. um, but yeah nothing nothing super exciting but at least now I can cook I can fend for myself and it's tasty <laughs> so it's good that's awesome so now going to academia yeah. right um, what's your story how did like why you became an academic what was kind of like that decision process yeah I um, I love that you asked this because I think everybody has a different journey into mm -hmm. that space um, for me I uh, got my undergraduate degree in engineering and so I spent about 10 years after um, graduating college uh, working and I worked I, I worked in a wide variety of jobs I worked in engineering obviously I worked in operations jobs um, I ended up working in some sales and some finance and like at one point was in a marketing department for a short while I for someone with an engineering degree I really did a lot of not engineering for part of my life Um, but during that time, I got to see a lot of different organizations. I got to see a lot of different managers. I, you know, I had a lot of bosses. Um, I eventually became a manager and then eventually became a supervisor with like 120 people underneath me. Um, and those experiences, especially, you know, when you're in your 20s and early 30s, um, sort of shape, you know, what's going on and how you see the world because you've had, because I had so many different opportunities to watch the good and the bad and then try it out myself. And I think in doing that, I, I realized that Um, one, when I had all of the bad bosses, I realized that I liked them as people that I just didn't like their management style or they just mm. never had been taught how to manage people, um, which is pretty common, I think, in a lot of industries. You might be really good at your job, so you just become the boss because you're the next person there. Um, so I started to realize that management skills like could be taught, and that was really important. And then once I became a manager and I started and a supervisor and I started having managers that I was training, uh, it helped me realize that I wanted to be helping train more managers in the future. Um, so that sort of led me into, let's start looking at, at graduate programs. Um, along the way, I got a master's degree in leadership, and I think that helped shift uh, where I was going in my life too. And so that led me down to, let's go get a PhD so I can continue to train future managers so that we can actually, they can actually be good at it um, and maybe not be the bad experiences that I had. Nice, I like that. Yeah. Um, and so following up with that, what's for you, Kind of like the best thing about this this job, like the best thing about the gig. Um, I I love the autonomy. Uh, I I sort of see myself as like this career lets you kind of act like an entrepreneur, but still have the safety net of a salary. Mm -hmm. uh, if that makes any sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I love that I can control a lot of what I do during the day. I have a lot of projects that I work on because they are important or interesting to me. Um, so I you know that autonomy I think is what is the most important thing for me in my career um, but I also get so much satisfaction out of those different aspects of our job like I love um, I, I think doing research is is really cool I love asking questions and investigating things and I also I love teaching so I think it's I love being in the classroom I love teaching at the undergraduate level and the graduate level um, and helping shape people's lives and being a mentor to others um, and I also you know we often service can be in a lot of forms but I I really enjoy sort of being part of a community and, and uh, that also means like going out into the community and, and serving the community in certain ways that we have as, as experts in a field. So, um, you know, I like all three parts of our job, but I like that I can, again, sort of control which aspects of those I want to do certain weeks or certain months. Nice. And so the other side of the coin would be, so that's a, your favorite part, the best part, but what's, what's some of the most challenging parts of, of this job? Um, Having autonomy is actually, to me, the most challenging part, too. It's, <laughs> it's a double-edged sword, yeah. Yes. I mean, um, everything's in my, or I feel like a lot of things are in my control, which then means that it's up to me to, um, to figure out what path I want to go down, to see what's worth my time and what's not. And there's a lot of 
I think in, you know we have a lot of good ideas. I want to be doing a lot of things, but then oftentimes I have to make sure that I'm I'm in charge of setting my own boundaries now to make sure that I'm not doing too much. And that's very different from having a job where you're just being told what to do and you just go, you do your job, you get told what to do, and then you go home. Um, you know, when we have all of this freedom, um, it's also a challenge. Um, we have to sort of learn how to handle that well so we can manage ourselves, manage, you know, still live a full life with all the people around us. Um, so that's still hard for me, is trying mm -hmm. to find that balance between what can I take on versus what do I want to do, which is a lot more than I can actually take on, yes. uh, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so now I want to go into more like the, the special topic that I mm -hmm. uh, thought for these sessions, and it's more about academic mentoring and yeah. having finding a mentor, an advisor in your program and outside your program. So maybe if you could share a little bit of your own experience, maybe as a mentee or a mentor, as a PhD and an academic, yeah. and then I can go uh, and go deeper into some of the other questions I have. Um, so I mentor, like as a mentor, um, I mentor people a little bit differently. We, at, at our University of Old Dominion, um, we have a PhD program, but it's in an area that's not my focus. It's a lot of entrepreneurship and strategic management. So I tend to mentor students like very informally. Okay. Um, and I also, I guess I find myself in a lot of sort of informal mentorship capacities because I, not only do I tend to mentor students, but not, I don't have a class, I don't teach a class with them, I don't lead or, uh, you know, supervise a, a dissertation. Um, and I also tend to lead these consortia uh, like here at SMA or at MOBTS, um, and I see that sort of as the informal mentoring that I do with, with students. Um, that's sort of on the mentorship side, but did, what else were you, what else were you thinking? You're, when you were yeah. a student, right, or who were like maybe some mentors for you? Okay. Or, yeah. Um, so as a student, uh, I went through a few different, I went through a few different mentors, um, and sometimes I think that's maybe common for, a, for some people as a PhD student. Um, you sort of get depending on what's going on in the department at the time and what faculty are there and sometimes faculty leave or sometimes faculty go on sabbatical or, or you know you sometimes you don't meet I did not have the same mentor um, I had one consistent mentor the whole time but I also went through a few other mentors as well um, so for me finding a mentor uh, was sometimes by chance uh, sometimes it was just the, the faculty that you were assigned to and then suddenly it worked out really well um, you know I had one mentor Doug Pugh for I, I think all four years it may have been three of the four um, and it just it just kind of worked that it, it you know every semester he was still it was still working it was still a good relationship and so that was really helpful sometimes a little luck helps um, with finding somebody um, and then I also had Allison Gabriel who joined VCU when I was there uh, for my last two years and so she became a mentor as well and again it's just that's who they hired and that's where I you know started being her research assistant and very quickly um, she became a really strong mentor in a short amount of time and that was really helpful too. Okay, and so the next question I would like to, to get kind of like a little bit of your perspective on is, especially with all the experience you have running these consortia for students, what do you, and, and, and you know about academia, what are maybe some, like when, when students are thinking about a mentor, developing a mm -hmm. mentorship, what, what should they be thinking on? Because I think like sometimes they go through that, I want a big name, right? right. <laughs> um, I want to be mentored by someone that is, quote, famous unquote right right uh, but maybe there's I mean that might be important and that might be helpful but there, there's more to it what yeah. what else would you like advice I mean I I think a good mentor is more than just someone who's like a genius I mm -hmm. I, I think that the, the geniuses in the world can be really good mentors but I also think you have to find somebody who's actually going to be good at mentoring you for what you need 
Um, and we all need different things at different parts in our career. So you might need different mentors at different stages. Um, so I think it really helps to find somebody who's going to support you and your ideas, um, as opposed to maybe, uh, to me, a good mentor is not someone who's just going to give you a project and, and ask you to just go ahead and like, to just do it for them. I mean, that's not mentoring somebody. You need somebody who's going to support you. And again, I think support you in here, what's your idea and how can we make your idea stronger so that you can become an independent thinker, an independent scholar on your own. Um, and I think also somebody who can support you um, in all of your life, again, recognizing that we all have these other aspects of our life that are part of us. And so you want somebody who can understand that if you have something outside of life going on, you know, there are going to be times where that needs to be priority number one, too, uh, or instead of, of, of schoolwork for even a short period of time. Um, so I think it helps to find somebody who, who understands those things and maybe that you can get along with and have those open, honest conversations with. Um, because I think in your PhD journey, you know, you start out as a student in year one, you're just taking classes and you're, you're sort of absorbing all this information. But by the end of it, you, you know, you're graduating and you are then becoming your own independent person. Um, and so you want somebody who can see you through that journey uh, rather than just treat you as a student the whole way through. Mm -hmm. you, sort of, you need to mature throughout that process of, of somebody mentoring you. Yeah. Okay, another question that I have for you is a little bit of, um, so when, when, when there's students that want to approach somebody that's outside their program uh, for advice, for help, for mentorship, Maybe what are some things that, and, and, and you might have uh, this situation happen to you, like if, if a student approaches to you, what are a little bit of the expectations or uh, the best practices you would recommend when there's no, when it is not somebody that it's in your program, right? Because maybe right. when it's somebody in your program, there's kind of like this commitment, right? Because we're in the same <laughs> institution, yeah. but outside of the program, it's it has to be very authentic and organic, right? So what are maybe some of the, the suggestions you would give to students that want to reach out to people outside of their programs doing a conference or something like that? Um, I, I think step one is just to actually reach out. I think it can be really intimidating. Um, I, I actually met somebody at SMA at this conference. Um, I think it was maybe my second year and we were just in the same paper session. Um, and so, you know, I went up to them afterwards and just started talking with them because we were in the same paper session because we had similar topics that we were studying. Um, and, and it led to uh, him being a co-author, uh, Arnold Bacher. Um, and, he didn't necessarily become like a big mentor for me, but he became a co-author on a paper and saw me through uh, my first, like first authored like piece that I was mm -hmm. that I was working on as a PhD student. And so, and he was not at our institution. Um, it's just sometimes you just have to go up to somebody and get over that like fear factor of, I, you know, this person doesn't know who I am. Why would they ever like talk to me? Like most of us are interested in in these ideas, and and if you can find somebody and talk with somebody about a similar idea. Um, Oftentimes they want to help, especially if you have something that's that you're working on that's not just, I will tell you now being in my shoes as an associate professor, if you just come up to me and like want to talk for an hour, I can chat with you for an hour. Um, if you have a project and you've actually started working on it and it's kind of fleshed out, then I can actually get a little bit more involved because I kind of know, I, I know what my role is then. Um, whereas if you want me to start something and just bring you along, I, I struggle with that as if you came up to me and just said like, hey, I want to join a paper with you, but I don't care what it is. I, I wouldn't know what to do with that. Yeah. So have you should again have these ideas and then if you start to approach somebody, um, have them be a little bit fleshed out or be aware that it's going to be hard for them to find time to really help you too much with, without that, something bigger. That's great advice. Yeah. Um, so you just mentioned your associate professor now at Old Dominion. And I think a lot of like our mindset as PhD students is Right. Well, while I'm a PhD student, it's where I need mentorship, I need advice, I need maybe an advisor, a, a committee chair. But I think even as an, a, 
like junior faculty and assistant <laughs> once you move out yes you're a phd but you still need some mentorship right and, and you need somebody maybe at your new institution to guide you through the tenure process to help you and you might stay in touch with 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 some of your advisors or people in your program but then maybe if there's something you could share around that once you become a, a professor yeah. um what's the right approach to have to mentorship or to look to people in your new department right i think that's um i, I was really fortunate that our school set up mentorship programs and you were set up with a mentor outside of your department which mm. is very helpful so you if you starting if you're starting a new job it might help to if it's not formalized reach out to somebody in marketing or finance or accounting or someone else um, you know who's been there a little while because sometimes you want to talk to someone outside of your of your department just to you know see get just another opinion from an external view um, I also think it helps to create a network of people um, within like your same year or around your same year so if you if you're a first-year assistant um, you know, you know other first-year assistants and second-year assistants. And when you create that community, you're sort of trading off information that everybody's learning at all these other places. And so sometimes they, they might not be a direct mentor to you, but you might find somebody who uh, is really knowledgeable because of something that they've gone through at another institution. So I think that can be really helpful. Um, I also think, again, if you meet people at conferences, you know, talk to somebody who's who's maybe two to five years ahead of you, so to speak, because mm -hmm. they've probably recently gone through whatever <laughs> you've just been going through. Um, so they can turn into just friends, but you also can check in and chat with each other for 30 minutes. Or now, these days, we just jump on Zoom whenever somebody needs to talk for a couple minutes, yeah. and I think that's really helpful. Awesome. Okay, so I want to I wanna do something special with this interview because I have you, and I think, <laughs> uh, and you mentioned... Uh, Kind of like that balance with research teaching and service that is something pretty cool about the, the job and um yesterday you won an award on mm -hmm. um, uh, teaching pedagogy innovation i, I might be butchering the, the title <laughs> the exact title but i i think you you if, if there's something that uh, people that know andrew is like his quality as a person as an individual also as a teacher and how much you care about your students so and i feel like sometimes teaching might be a little bit of like on a second priority, right? And I understand research is very important, but I would like to, to hear a little bit about your teaching experience or kind of like your philosophy around teaching, because I think uh, for me as a PhD student, if I'm thinking about somebody that does teaching really well, I think about you and you're sort of like a role model. So maybe you can share anything, whatever you want around teaching uh, to PhD students. Um, I, I, one, I think if you, if you enjoy teaching, like if you start teaching in your PhD program and you enjoy it, don't don't like suppress that feeling um I, that doesn't mean that you're going to spend 80 hours a week teaching you have to learn how to box out your time uh just like you do everything else um but it's okay to to like it in fact it's okay to love it and i think it's okay to lean into that um just be aware that you have other things to do as well um so i think that's just part one is, is recognizing that's okay if you're someone who doesn't love it that's also okay um i was incredibly nervous and i didn't really like it my first semester or so um, because it seemed pretty intimidating. Uh, there's a lot of imposter syndrome. I think a lot of people feel it throughout the entire PhD process because like how, you know, who am I? And how am I supposed to be like this expert in something by in a couple of years? Um, but then all of a sudden you, you know, you're in front of 50 undergraduates or more sometimes. Um, and wow, you really, I, I felt like such a huge imposter because why are they even listening to me? Um, I guess because they paid to be here, but that made no sense to me at all then. So um, it's okay also if you're nervous, if you're anxious about it, um, and what I've learned is I don't have to 
know every single topic every single day like the number one expert in the world who wrote the textbook on it or something like that. Um, my job as a teacher is to um, actually make sure that students find why I think it's interesting and help them understand and be at least a little bit engaged in it so that they might find it interesting because at the end of the day my role is not to have at least in my opinion my role is not to have them memorize something so they can regurgitate it on a test it's so that they can gain a slightly deeper understanding about something and hopefully be interested in it so that next year five years from now they might just Google it or they might think about it or they might see something in a little bit of a different way because of class. I, I don't think in 10 years they're gonna remember what my test was about, but I hope that they can be excited to learn something more in the future. So do whatever you can in the classroom to sort of keep that excitement around the topic so that they want to learn more about it, I think is way more important. And I do that by, if something's fun for me in the classroom, I think that comes across to others. Mm -hmm. So I've learned to cut out the things that I thought were boring because I got bored teaching them. So I've been able to make sure that whatever I'm doing in class, I'm enjoying. And that's maybe the only advice I can give you is if you like it, find ways to enjoy it. And if you don't like it, find ways to enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Okay, so now we're doing kind of like the special the special game we have, right? So we have all these cards here. And this them. is terrifying. I know that none of you can see my face, but the fact that there's a bunch of cards with unknown questions to me is scary. Yes. So these are <laughs> the cards from the questions we, we searched from from attendees of, to the New Doctoral Student Consortium. And I'm gonna ask Andrew to draw one. Okay. And let's see what question is that. Ooh, advice on reading papers. Um, this changes a, a little bit. I, I think there's generic advice of like, it takes a while to learn how to read them. So your first semester, especially, you kind of feel very overwhelmed. Yes. Um, and then <laughs> some of the advice that I remember I was given was start with the discussion. Um, and I think that is very true for a while because it's gonna help you understand a lot of what went on in sort of a condensed uh, version. Um, I've, I've learned the further along I got in the PhD program, um, once I understood a little bit, once I kind of knew what was going on and what the general theme was, um, I tended to focus on the methods because then I wanted to see how they did something, um, if it was a methods paper uh, or if it was a paper that had uh, data in it. Um, so then I started to focus more on the methods because that helped me better understand what they were doing, um, not necessarily the whole, I can look at a model and a figure and then I want to know how they operationalized it because that's really fascinating to me. Um, and another trick that I still use, because I tend to go to the methods first now when I read, um, I've also learned like to read over the intro and the discussion again and figure out what the author said the contributions were um, because that's like what makes their paper unique to them. And, and likely if it's gone through peer review and all those other things, the reviewers felt that as well. So what are those things? If they say my contribution was this and this, um, that's probably exactly what their major contributions were. So find that line and underline it. Uh, because because that they're giving you like the answer of what's the most important part of what we did here. Um, so those are sort of my pieces of advice for how to read them efficiently. Um, and of course, sometimes you're just inefficient in reading them because everything's brand new and that's, that's okay. You just have to give yourself more time until you can figure it out a little bit quicker next time. Perfect, I think that was amazing. I really, I really like it. It's gonna be helpful for me, for sure. <laughs> Uh, thank you very much, Andrew. This was great. Uh, I really appreciate giving me your time. Yeah. And I think everybody's going to enjoy this podcast. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for joining me. 
And please stay in the loop for our next episode. I really hope everything we share here contributes to a happy and better PhD journey for you.